Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second cap and first cap and whatever. Thanks very much for taking the time to have a listen to us today. This is Second Captains at the Irish Times. And we are coming off the back of the tragic comedy at Old Trafford last night. Man United fans may have felt they hit rock bottom when they were hammered 4-1 by Man City back in September. Only a week or so later, they lost at home to West Brom, after which they probably gave up on trying to identify the lowest point of the season. Until last night, Ken, when it arrived in the beefcake form of Phil Jones lurching towards the penalty shot try to keep alive their hopes of carding cup glory quite incredible really um, I'm not sure why they let Phil Jones take a penalty although I have to say that I thought you know it's difficult to tell who's gonna who's gonna score and who's not I mean I, I was convinced Adnan Yanazai was gonna score I couldn't see him missing especially after what he did in the last minute to to you know create the equaliser yeah and the cliche always is about young guys Ken they don't feel fear yeah then again you saw Yanazai fixing his boots and um, he seemed to have a lot of boot issues before he took the penalty and I don't know but I mean I, I don't know exactly what influence David Boyes had on it there was obviously afterwards this article going around from the World Cup in 2010 when David Boyes was doing a column for the Sunday Times Go about how to, how to win penalty shootouts um, uh, you know a kind of a clinic yeah. uh, by him uh, where he was, he was saying essentially that the manager has to take responsibility for picking the penalty takers. Which, so I assume this is what he, this is what he did last night. That it was his decision to have, for instance, Jones. Um, mm. You know that that uh, you've got to uh, you've, you that you take the pressure off your players by essentially you, you decide who's gonna who's gonna take the penalties and you then ta- you are the one who's responsible so I guess that means we have to blame David Boyes again yeah well Poye said that his players were arguing with each other over who gets to take the penalties I think at the fourth one in particular there mm. was a bit of a spat between two and he said that's always a, a good sign but uh, one of the players who would have taken the penalty in fairness they lost character injury he would have taken and probably he would have at least struck the ball well yeah. and maybe had the football intelligence to keep it somewhere on target the other penalty taker who didn't take one would have been Chicharito, who was too busy going mental celebrating his last-minute goal to realise that, hang on, I'm already quite fatigued here. I was pretty bad in that extra time period. Yeah. I had missed a really easy chance in the first part because I was so tired. And now I'm cramping up after celebrating like a madman. So well, that was him out of the contention. Yeah, well, Moyes was speaking afterwards and he said, we talked with, within the group and these were the players who chose to. As a team, we made a decision together who would take the penalty kicks. So it was the players, effectively. I honestly don't think... Decided. I think this has to... This part of it has to move a little bit away from David Moyes. His players... What's, well, he, no, what's he supposed to do about David De Gea no, dropping that ball in? Or any of these guys not even leaning back? And it wasn't just Jones who did it. Was it Welbeck took one? Yes. Le- both of them le- just leaning back, def- trying to defy the laws of physics. Yeah. Leaning back, booting it up over the bars. God. No, no. The, the, obviously, the players need to take... A huge part of the blame here but at the same time if David Moyes is writing in 2010 saying the manager needs to take control that's what has to happen here the, ma- it, it has to, you, the manager has to take that pressure upon himself and then for him to in his first penalty shootout as Manchester United manager, well, to abdicate responsibility well that's fine I mean I actually I'm not that you know I, I wouldn't be putting this one on David Moyes at all because I mean get a penalty on target at least force the goalkeeper to at least save it if you're going to take a terrible, terrible penalty at least Get it on target. Do the Phil Bardsley thing, you know. Maybe a goalkeeper will throw one into the back of the net. You know, you you at least buy yourself a ticket to the lottery. Yeah, I mean, the thing, what, what Moyes actually says, 
27 June 2010. I think this is the day that England played Germany uh, in, the, in Bloemfontein, an occasion on which penalties weren't needed. Were not required. Um, in a good team, you win together, you lose together. The penalty shootout's the loneliest experience in football. The trick is to make participants feel they're less on their own. Players taking spot kicks need to know the responsibility doesn't weigh solely on their shoulders, but is shared. And the same goes for your goalkeeper. You can take pressure off your men by making yourself accountable for success and failure. You'd never go up on stage without an act. So I think if you walk up to take a penalty or stand between the posts attempting to save one, you should have a clear idea about what you're going to do. You know. Um, this is where the manager and the sharing of responsibility comes in and how he prepares his team is key. Uh, Moises Everton did beat Manchester United in a penalty shoot in the FA Cup. Uh, you might remember in 2009 in the in the semi-final. I think, was it Phil Neville who scored the decisive penalty on that occasion? Um, you know, you win some, you lose some. The reaction of the Manchester United players, I thought, was striking in how much this defeat looks, look, looked like it crushed them. And we should also say, in fairness to David Moyes, he did hold his hand up afterwards and say we didn't play well enough. Mm. He's And people, a couple of times after matches, he's been overly, he's been... I think overly reluctant to criticise the team and sometimes I've mentioned this on Twitter people are going oh what are you talking about you know, why would he slag off the players Ferguson never slagged off the players Ferguson didn't slag off the players individually and I'm not saying he should do that but when a team plays badly I think you can say we played badly and I don't think that necessarily means you're going to lose the dressing room they'd be aware of that and I, don't, I think it's actually fine to sometimes admit we didn't play well because in fact it's maybe no harm in letting the players know publicly and privately that they can do a lot more yeah, in, you know, individually, criticising individual players... Yeah, if he comes out and says, oh, work. yeah, I can't believe Yanis, I missed the penalty after doing all that good work. <laughs> what an idiot. I'm going to drop him from the next game. I wouldn't that, advocate that. That wouldn't work. But, yeah. you know, I think criticising the team when they, when they play badly is... What are you supposed to do? To say they were outstanding? I mean, some managers do do that, but um, I don't know if it's in the fitness necessarily... It insults fans' intelligence. I, 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 don't know if it, I don't know if it necessarily makes the players look at you and go, you know what, we were at standing. The manager talks a lot of sense. Do you think Hernandez might have been better off not celebrating so wildly? Um, Considering I can, he almost missed? I can understand why he did. I mean, they, it was an incredible. I mean, it was reminding me to that point of the, the Turkey against Croatia um, European, mm. uh, European Championship game. Where again, there was two goals in the last minute of extra time, you know. And you kind of assume then the team that the team that um, scores that equaliser is the one that's really going to, is the one that has the advantage going into the penalty shooter. Because the team that's lost their lead that they've held for about 40 seconds has surely got to be shattered. But then you remember that it was, and, and in fact they were. Sunderland scored two penalties and it was enough. I do remember at a much lower level of football, Murph, uh, scoring a goal once, mm. Ce- oh, that's celebrating nice. and- Celebrating in, well, one of about, you know, four goals over the course of maybe, yeah. you know, five or six years. But uh, celebrating wildly mm. and then feeling kind of crampy at the end of the celebration. <laughs> now, there was only about 20, 30 minutes gone in the game. Ah, so you shouldn't on, really be feeling. Yeah, I'm just great. saying Chicharito might have been better off trying to somehow yeah. keep those emotions in check. Interesting. Maybe that's you, a bit churlish. Well, maybe, maybe not, though. Um, interesting as well, the way you phrased your introduction there, that the lowest point wasn't when Phil Jones missed his penalty, but... When Phil Jones was walking to the penalty oh, box. Oh, of course. That this, was yeah. the lowest point. Oh, yeah. Rather than the actual missing. But you saw this Manchester United fans on social media were, no, not Phil Jones. It wasn't. <laughs> oh, there, was, uh, because you knew it. Missing a penalty is fine. Yanazai missing a penalty was disappointing and surprising. Yeah. The Phil Jones thing, it was just the inevitable. Yeah. Inevitability of the And it wasn't thing. even so much that it was inevitable that he was going to miss. It was also inevitable the manner of his missing. You know, it yeah. wasn't going to be. You know, a Beppe Signori half a step back uh, and the goalkeeper claws it away after he kind of, you know, tries to fake him out. Phil Jones was going to hit the ball extremely hard. Yeah. He was going to lean back. He was more than likely going to sky it over the bar. And that's exactly the what happened. The Sky commentary team were saying that, oh, Phil Jones came back from injury last week and maybe looked a little bit rusty in Manchester United's game. And I was thinking... Well, then he's rusty. Rusty is a good description for Phil Jones' style of football mm. all the time. Rustic might be Rustic, might, rusty. Might be better, <laughs> um, he always looks like he's just come back from injury, Phil yeah. Jones. Look, there, there, we can't it. doubt that, that Jones and the other players were practicing penalties in training because that was what David Moyes says is his method. But, of course, when you've played 120 minutes, as pretty much every player who takes a penalty in a shootout has, I mean, most of the time that's... Those are the circumstances. Everyone's played for 120 minutes. I mean, maybe some players have come on as a substitute and played a little bit less. Mm. 
but that does change things a bit. I mean, and who better to explain that than David Moyes himself? Uh, because in this article about the shootouts, he says, as I said, I'm not the guru. I was only in one penalty shootout as a player. I'm not without without revealing the end of the story. What do you think happened the probably, time probably David a Moyes? The time he was a penalty. David Moyes scored the winning penalty in the penalty shootout. I'll read the, read the rest of his story. It was for Bristol City versus Mansfield in the Freight Rover final, 1987. All week in training, I'd been mashing them down the middle and beating the keeper. But having played 120 minutes, I had cramp in both legs and hit my kick as if my foot was a shovel. It was in front of 58,000 fans at Wembley, and it was a sudden death effort. Because I missed, we lost the shootout 5-4. That day, I took two penalties, my first and also my last. Uh-huh. <laughs> Actually, only one penalty, though. I, it's interesting that he was all week mashing the penalties down the middle and beating the goalkeeper. Who <laughs> <Yeah, the> keep- <laughs> did they have a goal? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, no, he's faking me out. This time, he's going to go to the right or the left. No, definitely going to dive one way or the other, though. Moisey for sure smashes it down the center of the goal again. Yeah, we sh- we should say Moise was trying this- to give the goalkeeper the eyes, but yeah. they were the David Moise eyes. So he was actually Giant staring in- yeah. intently straight ahead of the yeah. goalkeeper. Listen, this one's not on you, David Moise. It's not on you. Loads more on this in second captain's football later on today. Looking forward to that one because we also have a very special guest, a man who could be the next power broker in world football. But more on that a little a little bit later on. US Murph today, Kieran. After his defeat, he wasn't playing, but his 49ers were defeated. Just tell people who don't follow American football and say, why should we listen to some San Francisco guy moaning about his San Francisco team losing? Why this is an interesting sporting story. He's a huge fan of the San Francisco 49ers, one of the most decorated franchises in American sport. And they have a close divisional rival, their neighbours, basically, the Seattle Seahawks, who for many years have been a total non-entity in uh, American football. Now they have an absolutely brilliant team. And uh, the 49ers and the Seahawks have a brilliant, brilliant rivalry. Uh, they, they're straight up don't like each other, own. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were playing in the, basically, effectively, the Super Bowl semi-final, the divisional final uh, last Sunday. And the Seattle Seahawks beat them on a last-second play that didn't work out for the 49ers. So he will come before us a beaten and a broken man. No Let's doubt. talk about a bad week for Dublin's Gaelic football team. First of all, their, the GA Director General, Pork Duffy, used a part of his annual report to revisit an incident in their league match against Donegal last April. In that match, Dublin's Kevin O'Brien was alleged to have bitten Donegal's Paddy McBrady. Now, that charge was not proven at a central hearings committee hearing, but Duffy said this was only because no one admitted to it and because the player, who he says was bitten, decided not to attend the hearing. Second, just last night... Dublin's Jason Whelan was banned for eight weeks for an incident arising out of the O'Byrne Cup game against DCU recently. I guess, Murph, last year's incident probably would have been brought up this week anyway. It would have been part of the story that there was an allegation similar to this last year which went unproven uh, and this one has been proven against Jason Whelan. But the fact that Duffy has been so outspoken uh, really set the cat amongst the pigeons. Yeah, it did. Um, Yeah, as you say, it was always going to get mentioned. But then on Tuesday, the fact that Duffy came out so strongly about a disciplinary uh, issue that effectively there was no result uh, outcoming from it, uh, that was a big surprise that that he would uh, use a a thing of the stature of his own Director General's report to Congress. I mean, it's a big thing. It's reported heavily every single year, mainly because it's on in January and there's nothing else to talk about. He also puts a lot of work into it. If if anyone ever reads, uh, you probably want to be a GA nerd, but if you ever read the full report from Port Duffy, it is worth doing. There's a lot of interesting thoughts. It does put quite a bit of time and thought into it. Yeah, effectively, it's a State of the Nation address for the GA that he does put an awful lot of effort into. Um, So that he would use a, a platform like that to talk about the... Kevin O'Brien, Patrick McBurty incident from last year, always meant it was going to get traction. But just that it would come the following day, the Leinster Council decision uh, against Jason Whelan, means it was always going to be a bit of a bloody nose from a, an image perspective for Dublin, but it's kind of a double whammy d- uh, this week of all weeks. Anthony Moyes has joined us in studio to talk about Anthony, thanks for popping into us. Good to see you. You too, lads. Is it a double whammy? Is it a bloody nose for the image of Dublin football, which seemed to be at an all-time high last year when they played a lot of great football on the way to an All-Ireland? Yeah, I think it probably is on. Um, now, people will probably say, well, look, <laughs> Mead Man commentating on this. He's always going to say this. But I think the problem really stems from last year, as far as I, I can see, with regard to what happened w- with the incident with Donegal, um, in the sense of probably Jim Gavin, I don't know whether he was advised badly or whether he took the advice and just took it upon himself to kind of nearly brush it under the carpet. But certainly 
it has festered since then. And like anything, you know, sometimes when you don't want things to come back and bite you, they inevitably do. And of course, that's what happened now in the last couple of weeks. It's happened as well, as Murph says, when there's not a whole lot to report about. So this is going to get a lot of focus. And Duffy chipping in as well and highlighting it so much has really put yeah. the focus back on. And we do have to be careful because there was nothing proven ultimately last year. But you think, when generally speaking, when an incident does happen, it's incumbent upon a manager to just get to the bottom of it to fess up to it I think away. so like I mean you know especially well he could he could have definitely laid down a kind of a you know a, a trail so we say and just kind of set the tone for himself and set the tone for discipline within his camp now maybe of course you know he, he did that maybe behind the scenes who knows but certainly from a, an image point of view um, people would probably say well look as Duffy has said, you know, maybe Donegal and Dublin kind of suited themselves to a certain degree. Were you surprised that Duffy came out and talked about an, an issue that his own association had not B- proven? Bungled eff- effectively. Yeah, I was a little bit. No, I was, I was, you know, kind of, if you think of last year, you know, and you think of, you know, what were the kind of the big events and even some of the stuff we spoke about, it was a lot to do, say, with the diving, you know, this kind of thing that Brawley kind of highlighted, you know, but that's that's nothing compared to this. This, this was a pretty serious um, event, um, you know, it's it's tantamount, I think, to you know, kind of spitting on an opponent. Like, I mean, it's 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 the worst thing you can do. I, I'd like, I mean, if anyone did it to me on a pitch, you know, it, it it just it just wouldn't be good because I think it's 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 a bit careless. I think it's it's. You know, there's. I just don't think it's it's really shunned upon. You know, if you if you, if it was done in soccer, if it was done in rugby, I think it'd be shunned upon just as much. And like, I mean, you don't want to see it coming in. It's been, uh, it's 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 certainly something that I think has 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 definitely put a uh, and has tainted the image of Dublin. Um, and it's, and it's you know, I know it's he's a, he's a new guy coming into the panel, but it's going to be very very difficult for it's him. Jason Whedon, yeah, Jason Whedon, yeah. yeah, you know, in in a nothing game, really, you know, in a game. It wasn't a league game. It wasn't a championship game. It was a game where you know, middle of January, um, really should tempers have even got that frayed. I don't know. It wasn't at the game. I don't know what happened. I don't know if he yeah, was fouled first. Yeah, a game between uh, Dublin and DCU and Dublin train in DCU. I mean, it, it seems like if ever there was a, fr- a friendly game uh, in any sort of a competitive atmosphere, this would be the game. Uh, and I don't know if it was as a direct direct result of this incident or whether the incident f- came on the back of it, but. It, for whatever reason, it did seem to be a very hotly contested game. And it just strikes me as bizarre that an incident like this would happen in a game of such, of such low importance. It, just, it doesn't make any sense to me, you know? Um, yeah. I, I, you know, it, 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 it's odd that it would Although, be... Although, uh, now, this maybe isn't a fair comparison, but a lot of the times, the, the brawls and scuffles that you see in GAA, and it, it's unfair to pick, it, pick out Dublin here, but as a Dublin supporter, I can remember the one against Meath, which was much ado about nothing in the uh, in Parnell Park in a league game. There was the Battle of Oma, as it was called. A lot of these things happened maybe earlier in the year in terms of these kind of brawls. Some of them maybe were, uh, you know, a bit more hyped up than was necessary because people aren't as worried about getting a suspension during the league or during the O'Brien Cup. Now, that's different from this case because a bite is a bite and shouldn't happen. There's, there's no, you know, you shouldn't, and I'm sure no player has in their head, okay, I'll get away with a bite in this competition. Mm. It's, it's obviously a rush of blood to the head, but you can't condone it. No, like, I mean, I remember that game. I think it was actually, you know, a Burnt Cup game, that game, you know, so, and again, but pretty heavy suspensions fell out of that game. But yeah, sometimes it can do that. Fellas started the year, you know, you have a lot of new guys in, they want to set a marker, the management want to set a marker down, you know, we're not going to back away from these fellas, that kind of stuff. But it's, you know, you're right, you can't condone biting, it goes way too far. And I think Duffy has probably, maybe he sensed the fact that this was kind of being brushed under the carpet. Uh, You know, admittedly, they were obviously involved in the brushing under the carpet, but I think maybe he probably said, you know what, this needs to be highlighted. Like, he did make the point that his actual review was done before the DCU game, so it wasn't like you know all of a sudden he 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 saw that as well, and he said, "Oh, well, I better highlight this." Yeah, you know, he's lining the dubs up effectively. Yeah, yeah you know. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so it's kind of um, I think it's something that he wanted to say. Look, let's put it out there and let's make sure that there's, this all of a sudden doesn't become a you know an epidemic. Have you game. ever come across biting? You said that it was something if it happened to you, you'd be fairly livid. But have you ever seen it or heard about it? Never, no. never. You know, like I mean, you get the usual with especially with cornerbacks and felt like pinching and this and stuff like this, standing on your toes, maybe doing. This different things like that, standing on your heels, you know, but never, uh, I have to say, never in a, in a, a bite. The pinching thing must be really annoying. 
I always I, I see players. Well, you're pinching. talking to a man who yeah. does nothing but pitch for about 15 years, probably. So yeah. when it well, happens, I, know, I think it's yeah, fine. Yeah, you know. giving it is actually. Okay. I'm not trying oh, to. I'm, not, it, I'm not trying to equate it to biting by any means, but it just looks so annoying. Being pinched. Have you yeah. been? When was the last time you were pinched, Murph? It's not an. It's not an enjoyable moment. No, I've, I, I, Anthony's saying it's dumb on this one as possible because no, I, I, no, I, I can't some remember. give and take on the pinching front. I yeah. literally can't remember ever being pinched. I mean, on a football field or in general. I'm sure that I have been, but it is pretty. Having your toes stood on is quite annoying. Being pinched, I think, is a lot more. It's been a long time. For yeah. myself as well. See, there's different types of pinches as well. You know, you can you can do the pinch where you actually twist as well. Oh yeah, that's yeah. a pretty good one. Or you can just do the small little one, yeah. which can actually be sometimes be sore than the kind of a big fat pinch. Yeah, it's good. It's good that we've got an expert in this area. <laughs> the, in the studio, that's always good. Jason Whedon's a young player just breaking in. It's clearly bad news for him. Could this be? It's, Dublin's got a big squad. They've got a lot of forwards. Could this be? I don't want to be too dramatic, but a bit of a fateful. And I know people aren't going to be feeling sorry for this guy for what he did, but he's getting his suspension. He's, he's going to have to take his eight weeks. Would you be concerned about the impact this would have on how he's viewed or his chances within the Dublin team? Yeah, eight weeks. Like I mean, so he gets back probably end of March, coming into April. Um, he misses a good part of the league. You would feel that. Gavin is that type of a of a manager of if a guy has a jersey and he's going well he'll stay in the jersey. It's 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 a setback for him. I don't think. Look, it could be a rush of blood to the head. Like I mean, different players have it. They do different things. Um, obviously, I'm sure he's. I'm sure he'll probably say something or come out with some kind of a statement. Um, but it definitely it knocks him back a lot. Uh, I can't see Gavin kind of jettisoning him off the panel because that would be even more of a statement I'd see him probably leaving him on or trying to say to him well look I have you now in a position where I need you to really work hard and try to impress again but it's not good for him we know how fastidious um, uh, Gavin can be and he takes care of every little detail would you imagine he'd be sitting the players around at some stage uh, this week or maybe has already done so and just say lads I know it doesn't need repeating it's quite obvious but Discipline's really important this year. Yeah, well, I think, you know, the standard bearers now, um, new sponsors, AIG, don't want to be, you know, like, I mean, and, 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 you know, I saw a report, obviously, during the week about the, the commerciality of Dublin, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that's what they are now, you know, yeah. like, I mean, they, you can assume sometimes, a, you know, a role on, on you as a, as a team or as a county or whatever it is, and, you know, with that comes a lot of plaudits, a lot of sponsorship, a lot. But then you actually have to walk the walk, as they say. You yeah. know, and you can't. You know, he he's the leader of this now. You know, and he's obviously has men to answer to as well. So Gavin, as you know, same if he was a you know a leader of a board within a company, he has to say to himself, right, actually, you know, I can't, I definitely can't let this happen again because it's ruining the image, it's ruining the brand that is Dublin, and like I mean, it is a brand at this stage. Yeah, and you can't, you know, it it, it sounds uh, almost counterintuitive, but if a company pays the sort of money that AIG are paying, they're paying it, they're paying for all of it you know they're they're not paying for the all ireland final parade in marion square uh, you know at the end of september they're they're paying for everything to do with dublin ga so that that has its own pressures you know and and uh we as you mentioned there's been a lot of talk about the advantages that dublin have from a commercial point of view compared to other counties around the country but and that's obviously a huge advantage in the preparation of teams to have that money there but unfortunately you know, there's no such thing as a free dinner. So you do actually have to mind your P's and Q's in in, in the in this respect as well, in the image respect. Anthony, I won't have to let you go because we're drafting US Murphy in to talk about the Super Bowl. Were you struck by the violence in the match between the Seahawks and the 49ers? Yeah, yeah. There was there was a few tackles here. I was kind of saying, wow, you'd be proud of that one yourself. Like, I mean, it was it was literally, it was absolutely over. Well, it was it was on the edge, if not over the edge at times. It was a great game. I, I just, I actually, I, I went to Dead and uh, I just couldn't believe the next day that the 49ers lost it. Absolutely couldn't yeah. believe it. I was sick. I think Brian Murphy might be a little bit sick as well. Anthony, great stuff. Good to talk to you. Cheers. To celebrate the launch of the new Mazda 3, we're inviting you to join Jerry Thornley, Liam Toland, and a panel of rugby experts as they discuss the upcoming RBS Six Nations. For your chance to attend this once-off Irish Times Six Nations event in association with Mazda 3, go to irishtimes.com. The all-new Mazda 3, proving everyone wrong. Dryers is a metaphor for the current of hot air generated by various blasts of temper. The hair dryer with which uh, Alex Ferguson was famously associated. He threw a hair dryer, I think, at David Beckham. Oh, he threw a hair dryer at David Beckham. Uh, in the, is that right? No, 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 no.
I want to move away from the violence for a moment before we get back into the violence in the NFL chat. But we were talking on Tuesday about the new super coaches, the celebrity 1980s legends uh, who are all now coaching the current yes. top guys. Stefan Edberg involved with Roger Federer, who's Ivan Lendl. in action tomorrow uh, against Rafael Nadal. Rafael Nadal stayed old school. I think it's still Uncle Tony involved with him. But Ivan Lendl, yeah, has done great stuff with Murray. Boris Becker has derailed Djokovic this year. But I'm sure... Permanently just torpedoed to... his uh, career. <laughs> I came across <laughs> I came across the story of when Brad Gilbert started to coach Andre Agassi. Oh, right, Agassi bro. had already been quite successful up to this point. We're talking about the sort of mid nineteen nineties, March nineteen ninety four. Uh, it was the coach or the manager of Agassi who suggested, "Look, this Brad Gilbert guy. You've played against him. You, you see, he's tough to play against. He's nowhere near as talented as you, but he's a smart tennis player. He's written a book called Winning Ugly, mm. which explains how less talented players can." beat more talented players so this could work for you you're really talented why not have a listen to this guy and see if he can maybe be be your next coach because they need a new coach at the time now first of all Agassi go and have a dinner Agassi is hugely impressed by the body hair all over Brad Gilbert his head arms biceps shoulders face are covered with black hair Brad has so much hair I'm both horrified and jealous his eyebrows alone are fascinating I think I could make a beautiful toupee out of just that left eyebrow (laughs) (laughs) okay so it's a good suggestion okay Brad Gilbert then impresses him <laughs> even more funny. by refusing to accept whatever beer was in the restaurant, going next door and getting... He only drinks Bud Ice, so he gets a six-pack of Bud Ice, brings that into the restaurant, starts necking the Bud Ice. Okay. That's uh, that, that impresses impressive. Yeah, I'm yeah, not okay. quite sure. Not okay. quite sure why. Yeah. Then he spends the next... The, uh, by the way, Gilbert had no idea what he was being called in for. Then the manager goes, we're, we're thinking about Andre, Andre's game and how it could be improved. How do you, how do you reckon you could... Why? Gilbert's saying, why do you want me to talk about... I don't really want to criticise Andre mm. Agassi here. And they said, no, 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 just go ahead, just tell us what you think. And he completely destroys Agassi, saying, you underachieving piece of crap. I'm, I'm slightly exaggerating here. Yep. But he goes through a, a really detailed dissection of why Agassi hasn't won more than he's won. Bang, he's our man. You know, he's hairy, he drinks butt ice, and he's happy to criticise Andre Agassi. <laughs> that's, how, that's how you get it done. I don't know if it was the same. I don't know if Edberg went to Federer with the same kind of yeah. approach. Your hair looks ridiculous, Roger. What, what the hell is that bandana all about? Uh, he, Throw that white jacket out. Monograms are idiotic. <laughs> they, they are. They are. Fairness, yeah. But the, Agassi himself is an extremely hairy man. Not on top of the hair. Not on top. Uh, oh, oh, no, else, but everyone yeah. else. I mean, because he, he, he had that uh, straight line across his chest there. He obviously yeah. shaved down and then it was a straight line. Pete Sampras, another very hairy man. Maybe it's... Related to tennis playing ability? Perhaps. Is the sample size enough to... <laughs> on a totally unrelated topic, how good re- tennis were you on? Not very. Well, there you go. The exception that proves the rule. Really good second captain's football coming up later on. That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm, walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I'm down to Anfield and we'll see them all. What are you doing down here, you shawny man? <laughs> Well, we're going to talk to Jérôme Champagne, who is one of the, well, the only confirmed candidate for the FIFA presidency yeah. of next, uh, in the election next year. Um, we still don't know if Seth Platter is going to run. Uh, Michel Platini hasn't revealed his own plans, but Jérôme Champagne has. So we're going to hear from him about uh, why he wants to be the FIFA president and what kind of things he think he maybe thinks Can we talk about do? the Qatar World Cup and those sort of issues? I think, to do that? I think we should. Cool. We should. We'll see if he's happy to, to talk about the, those kind of issues. <laughs> yeah. um, that sounds good, yeah. And we're going to talk a bit about Manchester United as well. <laughs> I am sorry to anybody who's suffering from Manchester United fatigue. But see, there's no one... What, who does? Who could, who could possibly? What can, you, what can you do? What can you say when this, this is a factory of... It's a theatre of dreams, you know? It's a factory of, of incredible stories. And... Uh, <laughs> There's, not, there's nothing that we can do. We are powerless not to talk about Manchester United. We can't and, not you do know, it. Many other fans want to hear their team being discussed. And everyone else loves talking yeah, about Manchester United. All of a sudden now, other people want and to this hear is about it. It's not just this, this um, unbelievable penalty farce, uh, but also the uh, one matter arriving by helicopter any minute now. Probably already has by the time you're listening to this, mm. at, uh, at Manchester United and exactly what they hope to achieve by that and why Chelsea would 
sell this guy who's been one of their best players. There's a lot to talk about. All right, folks, I know we're all in pretty good form, but let's just dial it down, dial the enthusiasm down a little bit and tread carefully here. It's the time funeral to, march begins. It's time to talk to a vanquished, defeated US Murph. Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game. No matter who wins or loses. I am deeply sorry for my irresponsible and selfish behavior. You're being extremely truculent. Whatever truculent means, if that's good, I'm there. Strike three called, and the Giants have won the World Series in Detroit. He's out on his feet. Frank Capitino's going to let him keep going. Got it! Got it. Touchdown! Touchdown, Gordy! Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Brian Murphy of KNBR in San Francisco. How are you holding up there, big guy? Boys, I wish I had better news for you. I wish I was. I wish I was holding up better than I am. I'm, I'm 46 years old. I have a wife. I have two kids. I have a mortgage. I have a job, and I'm still super bummed out about Sunday night's drama in Seattle. And that's what it was. But even the intro you guys play, you know, here in the, uh, the Giants winning the World Series, it makes you realize, oh my God, it. You know, it's like how rare it is. You know, and then. Hearing that call about Alex Smith to Vernon Davis, happier times, and uh, you also—I I was taking great stock in the intro today because he also had that great, uh, Howard Cosell moment where he says, "It is just a football game." <laughs> I gotta remind myself of that. But there was just—it was just an amazing drama. The positives, guys, are that it was really, really one of the most dramatic and awesome and epic games I've ever seen as a 49ers fan, considering the stakes and the setting. And the tenseness of the game and the, and the intensity that both teams were playing with and how it ended. It was one of the most unforgettable games I've ever seen as a 49er fan. That's the positive. The negative is that we will have to wear it forever, forever. And just kind of summing it up, I mean, I know probably a lot of the Irish listeners don't, wouldn't remember this, but it's, it's second only to the 1990 NFC Championship in which the 49ers and Joe Montana were going for their third consecutive Super Bowl, which we all placed great value on because we knew it would never be matched and it was going to seal them as the greatest dynasty in the history of the NFL. And they had the New York Giants beaten that candlestick and Roger Craig fumbled late in the game and the New York Giants recovered and kicked the winning field goal. And it's commonly considered the most painful defeat in 49er history. And I think all of us in 49er-dom are, are placing this one a close second. Why does this one hurt so much, Brian? Uh, it starts with the rivalry. It starts with the rivalry. Seattle in a hurry, and we talked about this before. In a, they raced up the totem pole of 49ers rivals. You know, we've had it with the, the Cowboys forever in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and the Packers throughout the 90s. But the difference was this was a, a division rival. A West Coast city, you know, Green Bay and Dallas are, are foreign lands to us. You know, Seattle is essentially San Francisco, and San Francisco is essentially Seattle. We're very similar cities, so there's a lot of commonality and a lot of, um, you know, you know a lot of people, and they know a lot of you, and it almost makes it more personal. You know, so it starts with the rivalry, it's, and, it, and then it, and then it, the, the particular nature of the Seahawks. We talked about this last week, the nouveau riche nature of the Seahawks. You know, which was really challenging the very fiber of the 49ers. You know, legacy, kind of like they were sort of telling us that everything the 49ers had accomplished over the last 30 years was meaningless. Because the Seahawks were the new boys in town, the new bullies on the block, and, and they were mocking us for, you know, we heard from any number of fans or, or, or memes that made the internet mocking 49er fans for clinging to the past. So that, you know, almost like, it's almost like talking about your father or your grandfather as a sports fan, you know, when it comes to sports. You can't diminish Joe Montana and, and what he did. Come on. And so we got the rivalry. We've got the, the, the sort of poking that was going on at the new, at the new money versus the old money. And then it was the, 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 the gauntlet the 49ers were running, having gone to Green Bay, having gone to Carolina, and now trying to do something that was historic. Guys, the stat came out that if the 49ers were going to win the game, they would be the first team in NFL history since 1966 to go on the road four straight weeks and win because they won at Arizona to end the year, too. So we had this like incredible uh, flag planting that would have gone on. It would have been an, a historic achievement 
that would have stood in NFL annals forever. It would have been at the expense of our hated new rival, and it would have been in their stadium where things, that's another angle, that whole 12th man Seattle fan thing really started to rub people the wrong way. As if every NFL fan was meaningless next to the 12s, as they call them. We're the best fans in the NFL. We can't be beat. We're the best. We're looking at our Guinness Book of World Records. All sorts of things go into the pot. Then, of course, Colin Kaepernick. Those of us who support him, like me, were looking for that signature win that would just deny all the haters forever, all the Alex Smith doubts, all the questions about his, could he ever win one, would just be totally, totally dismissed if he had won in Seattle and then finally, guys, on top of all that, how the game played out. You know, from the 49ers taking a 10 nothing lead to Seattle taking a 23-17 to lead to the 49ers marching down the field and looking, looking, looking like they were going to do it. I was up out of my couch, of course, pacing like a maniac, saying they're going to do it. They're going to win. They're going to win this game. And it's going to be the most dramatic win ever. 24-23 in Seattle on the last play. It's going to be historically epic for 100 years. And instead... It ended like it ended. So, does that convince you? That convinces me, Brian. We feel your feel your pain over here. I, I, I'm almost powerless, Murph. I don't know what to do, Karen. Yeah, I know. Because I, I have to say that you know, I uh, I've decided that the San Francisco 49ers are the team that I support in the NFL, right? Ah, the but, babe, Murph. Yeah, and like you know, that's fine. I'm like I've, I'm emotionally involved for like two years, and that game made me jump off my couch like on three separate occasions at the sheer amazingness of what I was watching and it was like it was an absolutely brilliant game but I I did kind of feel like I can't even talk to Brian about this because I feel I feel pretty bummed out but I also felt pretty tired because it was quarter to three in the morning and that was kind of the you know that was almost as big an emotion for me as the Niners losing Mm -hmm. so I kind of feel like we're me and you are both woefully undermanned here and trying to understand Brian's the depths of Brian's pain and Brian I hate to put it to you but you did mention all the ties between San Francisco and Seattle and you have closer ties than many (laughs) you explained that your in-laws are indeed uh, Seattle based have you had any Richard Sherman style gloating from those (laughs) parents of your wife Oh, my goodness. You know, it's funny. Richard Sherman went to Stanford here in the Bay Area, so he's got a Northern California tie, and he played for Jim Harbaugh at Stanford, actually, and that adds to the layers of Richard Sherman. But actually, what's incredible is how, and this kind of speaks, it's funny about Seattle, the city of Seattle. They're kind of an interesting case because it is maybe one of the most polite and civilized cities in the entire country. If you ever go to Seattle, you'd be you'd be amazed at just how genial everybody is and how really, really kind of quiet and reserved and really, like in New York, famously, you know, horns are honking and guys are jaywalking and screaming at cabbies or whatever. Same in Philadelphia or Boston. Seattle is a very, very likable city. The people are very, very genial. It's, it's crazy how they turn into raving lunatics inside their stadium. And there's many sociological theories on that, like, you know, maybe it's their only chance to ever color outside the lines because they're such a civilized, quiet people. But uh, that would be the case with my in-laws. We have a ton of cousins and in-laws who all were talking before the game, and they were all very cordial, very cordial. Great game. Uh, Wow, it's amazing. One team had to win, one team had to lose, and, you know, wow, what a game, and sorry, you know, your team. They were far too polite. (laughs) You you, you wanted them to be gloating (laughs) rather than being nice about it, yeah. It was almost a bit better, but, yeah, they were very gracious about it, and now it's hard for me to tell them, though, that I'm not rooting for their team. You know, I should be like, oh, you know, I, now I want you guys to go experience your first ever Super Bowl. I mean, that would be the mature thing Obviously, to say, yeah. you know, we've had five, and, and this is your time. This is your time for your city. And Seattle's never won anything since 1979. The Seattle Supersonics basketball team won the NBA title. And since then, not only are they working on a 34-year drought for their entire city, but they've lost that basketball team. They moved to Oklahoma City and became the Thunder. So, I mean, they've really had a lot of pain, and you should support them. It's a beautiful city. They're pretty good, pretty darn good fans, despite my jealousy of their, uh, you know, their home field advantage. And they've never won one. And Denver and, and has won them, and Peyton Manning has won one. So, I mean, you should root for Seattle. But I just can't. I want Pete Carroll to experience pain. I want them to come up short. Uh, for people who aren't familiar with Sherman, Richard Sherman, who we've been talking about there, Brian, we did play a couple of clips of his on the show on Tuesday, so I don't want to bombard everyone with them. But long story short, he's a guy who's come up from a, a tough part of town, from Compton. He's ended up going to Stanford, uh, as you mentioned there, obviously a renowned college in the United States. He seems like a, a bright enough guy, but a, a bit of a loud mouth and a brilliant defensive player, it should be mentioned as well. I've seen it mentioned quite a lot over the last few days. It, it, 
it's a stroke of genius by him that he's incredible at self-promotion and now everybody will be talking about him for the next couple of days. But it does strike me that, or next couple of weeks, it does strike me that it's not too hard. It's not that smart. I mean, all he did was shout, shout like a lunatic in his post-match interview. You know, there has been so much talk about that, as you, as you guys said. And I know you did a show earlier this week and probably talked about it. We're still talking about it. He finally did a, his first public interview since the incident. He did it with CNN and uh, an interviewer named Rachel Nichols. I'm sure you guys have that. And he came across, as so many people know him to be, a very intelligent guy. He's very uh, verbally dexterous. He's, uh, you know, he expresses himself well, much more so than the average football player. Not everybody is as uh, intelligent as Richard Sherman. And I knew his story. We knew him from Stanford, and we knew you know, he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated's NFL preview last summer. They did a huge preview on him. In fact, if you guys haven't read it, it's a really good piece by a really good writer who I think you've had on your show, Lee Jenkins. Yeah, I actually yeah. I, I tweeted it during the week. Uh, okay. It's a great there article. Yeah, really, really good article. Yeah, yeah. And that explains who he is, which is in many ways an extremely likable guy and easy to root for, just that he's... You know, the fact that he didn't go to USC, the football factory, because he wanted to prove to the kids in his rough neighborhood that they could go to Stanford, too. You know, and he does all sorts of charity work and all that. And he's a heck of a player, which is amazing because he was drafted in the fifth round, guys. I mean, usually that's kind of the dregs of the draft. You don't usually get superstars out of the fifth round. In fact, you almost never get superstars out of the fifth round. But for whatever reason, he was under-evaluated by people. In fact, one of the stories is, and I've never, nobody's ever confirmed this, but that one of the reasons he's mad at Jim Harbaugh now and has gone from being his former player at Stanford to hating him is that supposedly Jim Harbaugh did not rate him highly to NFL scouts when they came around. That's the rumor that uh, Harbaugh did not um, you know, give him a good evaluation. If, hence, he fell in the draft. And, you know, we know we talk about cornerbacks who cover wide receivers. They have such an incredibly difficult job. He does it so well in that he plays the ball all the time, which is what he did in that final moment. So many cornerbacks have trouble playing the ball. They'll commit a penalty. They'll face guard the receiver, and he does it at the six foot three height that he's at. It make it was the reason why that pass was was knocked down was because he was six three. I mean, if he was five ten like most corners, maybe that gets over his hands. And and we're talking about a whole different narrative. Colin Kaepernick, the hero, you know. So. He's, uh, it's still continuing to this day, uh, that the talk about him, it's finally simmering down a little bit as the week ends. But yeah, he, you know, he even admitted that he's studied Cassius Clay from 1964 against Sonny List and shocking the world with his attitude and his mouth. And he admires that. He has a degree in communications from Stanford. So I really don't know how much he really wanted to promote himself. I, I really do think part of it was truly heat of the moment, adrenaline. And, you know, and apparently, guys, there's now this backstory that they had an incident at a charity function in Arizona hmm. in April. This is taken on such depth that supposedly one of the other one of the two men insulted the other men at a charity function. And and Richard Sherman vowed to get him back on the field. Hence the history between these two. It's almost like, you know, medieval, you know, uh, I, I challenge thee to a duel or something. You know, he slapped his glove across his face or something, you know. So there's a history there. And that and that caused I think. In the end, guys, just kind of value it. I didn't have as much a problem with what he shouted to Aaron Andrews on Fox. I did have a problem with him running across the field and laying a hand on Crabtree, slapped him on the butt and kind of mocked him and made the choke sign to Kaepernick. We mm -hmm. don't really see that kind of behavior on an NFL field. That, I thought, was above and beyond. But as far as what he said to Aaron Andrews, hey, you know, it's, it's very much like Cassius Clay, and in some ways it's pretty darn entertaining and, and good TV. There is another team in the Super Bowl, Brian. It's the Denver Broncos. Peyton Manning playing for... I don't want to put any pressure on Peyton Manning here if he happens to be listening to this, Brian, but <laughs> if he wins his Super Bowl, he confirms himself as one of the greatest, some would argue the greatest quarterback who's ever lived. If he loses this Super Bowl, he's stuck on only one ring, and he's not even the best Super Bowl, uh, best quarterback in his family. <laughs> you're right. No pressure, right? Yeah. Uh, so, Peyton, if you're listening on your podcast as you head over to uh, New York, uh, you know, yeah. But yeah, you laid it out beautifully there. You're absolutely right. You know, he's 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 got a he's got a chance to finish one of the great comeback stories in NFL history. We forget that this guy. The Colts let go of him because they thought he couldn't throw a football anymore. And, you know, this was a, there was a thought he would never play again. What was it, seven neck surgeries? You give me one, I'll retire from walking, you know, forever. So for him to get back on a football field and then have the kind of year he had, 55 touchdowns, we talked about it all fall, about the record pace he was on and how staggering it was. 
And so he, he's now, we're talking like national icon type stuff. If he, if he rides the white horse into the sunset with a Super Bowl triumph after, uh, you know, at this stage in his career, after being dogged for 16 years about not being good enough, as you mentioned, his brother Eli won two Super Bowls already. And, uh, as, you know, if Peyton Manning has to sit on one forever, even though it's one more than, than Dan Marino ever won, you know, or, uh, you know, other quarterbacks, great quarterbacks who never won one, Dan Fouts, guys like that who never won a Super Bowl. Uh, even if, he, even if he, he wins the one, it would be sort of like Greg Norman, the golfer, who, if, you know, to, to listen to people talk about his reputation, you'd think he never won a major. Well, he did. He won multiple majors, but it's the ones he didn't win that people talk about more. And unfortunately, just in the term of sports conversation, that would be what Peyton would be stuck with. Uh, oh, yeah, he won one, but boy, he should have won a lot more. Therefore, he's never going to be Tom Brady. He's never going to be Joe Montana. He's never going to be, heck, Ben Roethlisberger's won two in the last few years, too. People forget about that. So, yeah, great storyline awaits us for Peyton. And, guys, to do it, he has to beat the number one defense. This is the first time in 20 years we have the number one offense, Denver, against the number one defense, Seattle. And that's statistically, they've given up the fewest yards of any team, the fewest points of any team. So it's going to be an amazing matchup. Can Peyton and his prolific passing game somehow crack the L-O-B, as Richard Sherman told you very vociferously, Legion of Boom, they call themselves, because they hit so hard and dominate games so much. That secondary of Seattle is no joke. Peyton Manning has a huge task ahead of him. Yeah, interesting to see the Vegas line on this, and it says that the Broncos are the favorites. You know, even just uh, coming at it from a relatively unschooled point of view, the idea that the, the number one defense is you know would be better equipped to win a game like this uh, than the number one offense. The basically the, the better defensive team, defenses basically win championships. Um, is a cliche over here, but it's it's probably no less true over there. Totally, and I, I'm with you. I'm surprised. I think the reason why Denver's uh, favored is that you know most people kind of fall for the Peyton. I think Vegas does that. They set up that line because most people kind of fall for the Peyton uh, narrative, the Peyton story, the Peyton fable, that he's the guy who threw. You know, if you look at the, the NFL stats, look at the points scored, and Denver was so far and above ahead of everybody else. That's kind of the simpleton way to look at it. Like, wow, they score so many points, of course they're going to win. Or, wow, Peyton Manning just beat Tom Brady in the, in the, in the AFC Championship, of course they're going to win. You know, Seattle remains, for all the love that we, we've had to – forced to give them here in San Francisco and for we saw them three times this year you know we played them once in Candlestick and beat them twice in Seattle and lost both of those so we on the west coast are extremely familiar with Seattle's prowess as a defense but i think nationally they remain a little bit of an enigma a little bit of a tucked away in the corner of the country pacific northwest gloomy rainy place that doesn't really, you know, still, there's still a lack of belief in them because of their lack of, of pedigree, their lack of championship history, their young quarterback who's so talented but has never won a Super Bowl. Peyton has won a Super Bowl. You know, their coach, John Fox, is, he's already been to a Super Bowl with the Carolina Panthers. He's a kind of an underrated story in this whole thing. One of the few coaches ever to take two different teams to a Super Bowl. So the Broncos have a little bit more of a name recognition, and that's what betters kind of flock to. But I'm with you. I mean, my first instinct is to take Seattle in the points just because that defense is so incredible. I think, guys, the stat is, and correct me if I'm wrong, that 15 previous Super Bowls, it's been number one offense versus number one defense, and the defense has won 12 of those 15 games. So that, that goes to what you were saying there, Kieran. Brian, the most important question before we let you go. Colin Kaepernick <laughs> might not be going to the Super Bowl, uh, the Super Bowl, I should say. Is Brian Murphy going to the Super Bowl this week? We are going, the Murphy Mac Show, KMBR 680, the sports leader in San Francisco, California. We are going to Radio Row. Boy, you guys ever been to Radio Row at the Super Bowl? You oh, were, my goodness. Yeah, you were telling us about it, uh, about it once upon a time, <laughs> many moons ago, I think. Is there, is there any, is there any, <laughs> you want to talk just a room full of just gas bags, just blabbing away, just, <laughs> I don't know, 50, 60 radio stations from around the country, and everywhere, everywhere you look, somebody's talking Blah blah blah, and it's so. I mean, if you if you if you just sat there and concentrated on you at all, you'd be like, oh my god, what an incredible waste of breath is going on here around the country. But we're just entertaining the commuters, guys. We're just entertaining the everybody. We're trying to get them through their mornings, and yeah, I'll be there Monday through Friday. Now, key element, guys, I will not stay for the game. I, we will fly back after the Friday because, to be totally honest, I've been to Super Bowls in person. I've been fortunate enough to go to four of them in person. 
they're better on the TV. Right. It's kind of a corporate. It's kind of a corporate event. You know, the, the fan bases only get a sliver of the seats, and the rest is all to Visa and Coca Cola and all that stuff. So it, it kind of doesn't really feel sort of artificial. Rather watch it at home, especially because the 49ers aren't in it. I'd rather just grind my molars in peace. Well, listen, Brian, we hope we've managed to help you through about 15, 20 minutes of your week. And we'll catch up with you next week on Radio Row. Thanks so much for talking. A little therapeutic, guys. I do appreciate it. So next week, hopefully, I'll be in a slightly better frame of mind. Thanks, guys. Oh, lovely to talk to Brian as ever. I really do hope we were of some assistance to him there, Murphy. He was... He was cut up. You know, he's the nicest, most polite, most upbeat man I've perhaps ever spoken to. Yeah. So to hear the disappointment in his voice when he first came on the phone there, that really, it stung me. Mm. I mean, you know, if, if this if this can affect Brian so badly, you know, I don't know. I mean, you know, it really struck to my core here today. I mean, Yeah, I'm, I think last year when he when the 49ers were beaten at a similar stage, he was... In the Super Bowl. In the Super Bowl itself. Oh, it was the Super Bowl, of course. Yeah, he was pretty cut up then. But no, this time time sounds even more devastating. They do say the semi-final, Murph, is the worst round. Do you remember the the semi-final losers? Well, people remember many out of it, I suppose. But (laughs) other than that... Tottenham in 1995. Tottenham in 1995. Yeah, FA Cup semi-final against Everton. Daniel Mukachi. 4-1. I have no recollection of that game whatsoever. Oh, I remember that. That was a great Tottenham team. Clint's been sharing them all those guys. The Fab Five. What were they called again? Yeah, the f- was it either famous the f- five? Fab Five, famous five. I mean, that didn't last long. Eventually, Jerry Francis came in and kicked out a couple of the five, brought in some defenders, uh, and then they it looked as though they were going to win the cup. Uh, but then Everton came along and squished them in the semi final. Tangham Kachi's greatest performance in English football. So I remember that semi final loser <laughs> was che- was it Chelsea the other semi final loser that year. Oh, no, they were the following year against Manchester United. No, the United beat them the previous year in 1994. Oh, no, I'm, I'm talking about the 2-1 Manchester United against Chelsea. David Beckham scored. Craig Burley scored for Chelsea, you remember? That was the semi-final before they went Murph on has to told you it. he does not remember semi-finals. <laughs> He's a walking cliche. Well, was, that, was that not the, the semi-final that Roy Keane stamped on Garrett Southgate? That would have been, that would have been Palace in 1995, yeah. Murph likes yeah. to live out his cliches, his sporting cliches again, so he does not yeah, remember semi If semi-final. I say, you know, if I say... You he, know, he can name any losing cup finalist from, you know, right from the oh, early 1900s. Try me. Do we, we actually don't have time for you to try yeah, me. No, but, yeah, no, off air, try him in the yeah, next yeah. couple of minutes. Thanks, Kieran. Thank you, Owen. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Kieran. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Thanks guys. Ken. Thanks very much for listening. Get in touch with us on Twitter at secondcaptains, facebook.com forward slash secondcaptains. Do listen out for the football show coming up a little bit later on, which will feature possibly the next uh, president of FIFA, Jérôme Champagne. It's the second time it's gone off. Never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. 